The following audio is from Overland Park Community Church. More information about OPCC is available online at overlandpark.cc. Welcome to OPCC. Welcome to those of you joining online. It's good to see you today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, six and we're going to get into um, some of the Word today. What time do the Chiefs play? What? Oh, we got plenty of time then today. We got all the time we need. Uh, so anyway, uh, the the Lord uh, the Lord impressed upon me today. We we've been down in these uh, uh, minor prophets for months, okay, and and they're heavy, okay. They they call you to obedience. They call you to repentance, and they really create a lot of pressure. Um, it's good positive pressure in the kingdom for us to walk out our obedience and what it means to follow Christ. So the Jewish people during this time, they were, you know, they were, they were chosen by God as an instrument to really speak to all of the world about what God is like. This is the way that God was choosing to speak to human, humanity. He starts with one guy, this guy by the name of Abraham, and makes a promise to him. And fulfills the promise and uses prophecy and, and different powerful experiences throughout um, Israel's history to demonstrate that there was a divine creator behind what was happening. And the surrounding nations, they would recognize it from time to time when God would move in a miraculous way. Uh, they were intimidated by the Israelites because of the power they possessed as they walked in, in obedience to the Lord. But then as they would walk in disobedience and they would begin to rebel, then the other surrounding nations would overpower them and would not be intimidated by their God. And so God was showing the world through the nation of Israel what it was like, what it meant, what his expectations were for people to follow him. And it was all to be um, obedient to his law. So he gave them a law and it was a good law and they were incapable of keeping it fully. But they strived toward it, and they walked in faith with the different sacrifices that God um, would be with them, be present with them, and help them along in their journey in life. And God, through the minor prophets, when we get toward the end of the Old Testament, He begins to paint a more clear picture of many of the things that were prophesied through the uh, major prophets of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, about the Messiah coming. And they were these, these different prophecies happened throughout the Old Testament. Even in the very beginning, in the book of Genesis, there was uh, the seed of the woman, it said, would crush um, the, the head of the serpent. And that was a prophetic utterance about the coming of Christ. And it was veiled, and we can look back in hindsight and see it now, but it was, it was there, even in the beginning of the creation story, all the way through the end of the Old Testament. Well, by the time we get to the minor prophets, the Israelites have become so disobedient and rebellious that they suffered the consequences of being uh, taken into exile by the Babylonians. So they were taken out of the homeland that was that promised land that was given to them when they would walk in obedience. And it was also told all the way back when Joshua took them in he said, if you will honor me, you will live in this land. It will be a good land for you. But if you dishonor me and you're disobedient to me, um, then there will be consequences. And the consequences were that they were taken out of that land and they were in exile. And so the minor prophets begin with the first ten 
like prophesying and trying to call the people back to repentance to keep this from happening. And they would tell what was going to happen, the impending judgment upon uh, the nation of Israel. And there would be periods during that time where they would, they would respond. Most of the time it was superficial. Um, and eventually what was prophesied happened and they were carried along uh, into exile by the Babylonians. And then we get to the last uh, three of, of the, the prophets, um, specifically Zechariah and Malachi, whom we haven't covered yet. And it's post-exile. So now they're released to go back. We learned about how... Uh, they rebuilt the temple. It was Zerubbabel's temple. And it was prophesied that it would have a greater glory than the former temple. Even though physically it would not, it did have greater glory because it was the actual temple that Jesus walked into. And so the former temple, the presence of God with the power of God and the fire of God coming down on the temple, like symbolic of His presence and the people witnessing that and seeing it, was a glorious experience for them. But then God became a man in the form of Jesus Christ, and he actually walked into the second temple. And so these prophets are all prophesying about the consequences of the, the impending judgment, which did take place. But there in the backdrop, they're prophesying about the coming of a Messiah. And there are, there are different prophecies within the, the, the prophets' material that talk not only about the Messiah coming as this suffering servant, but he would also be prophesied as coming as a conquering king. And so they picked up on that conquering king references on those prophecies. And that's why they were confused when Jesus showed up, because he came as a suffering servant. He came in humility. And he was coming to set up a spiritual kingdom. Well, all of those other proph prophecies were about what, we, what is known in theology as the perusia, which is just a fancy theological term to talk about the second coming of Christ. That He will come again, and when He comes the second time, He will come as that conquering king riding on a white horse, not that lowly servant riding on uh, the colt of a donkey. And so we see these two different prophetic utterances happening in um, all of these books. And so I've been teaching you um, and leaning into you really hard. And uh, last week we took a, a pause, we hit pause, and we talked about vision, a vision for the church, and gave you a little bit of an update about what's happening in the church and, and the project, and heard from some other um, members in the body as they, they did a great job and appreciate those guys. And so today I wanted to take another um, look at vision and talk about uh, uh, the vision for you personally in your own life. Because as all of these things are talked about and all of this pressure is created, uh, the, the hope and the objective of uh, the preaching and where the Lord has uh, me and, and leading you is that you submit to the Lord and that you walk out in obedience just like the nation of Israel was challenged to walk out in obedience, uh, their faith to the Lord that you would specifically walk out your obedience. And so the vision of the church is directly tied to the vision that you have in your own life. Now, as we jump into Luke chapter 10, what I find fascinating, or I'm sorry, chapter 6, and, and I've, I've taught this before, but I think it's worthy sometimes of repetition and looking at some of these things, um, is that we find a fascinating 
instruction from the Lord Jesus Himself as He was living and walking on the planet, and we see Him laying out His vision for us. And so there's, there's a set of expectations on your life, just like there was a set of expectations on the nation of Israel. And so Jesus in Luke chapter 6 kind of takes all of this and he puts it together in a summary, uh, if you will, sermon, the way it like reads in, in Luke chapter 6. And basically what, I'm, what, I, what I see in this is that, um, and it's really cool to think about Jesus having a vision. Because often when we talk about vision, we think in terms of God giving a vision to a man. And, and then that vision is communicated uh, to the people of God. Like the, the vision of uh, John the Revelator. He receives a vision and it is communicated uh, to uh, the people of God. And we have the book of Revelation. And so when we get to um, this passage here and think about Jesus having a vision then um, it's cool to think about man as a man. He has a vision. I mean, he's fully God, he's fully man, and he's communicating the vision as the God-man of what he's going to do. And what he does is he makes all things new. And that's what I see happening uh, in Luke chapter 6. And so I just want to unpack it, and I want to give you some things to hang on to. And what I want you to do is kind of have some self-assessment here and go, okay, you know, where am I in everything that, that Jesus is, is teaching and, and using Jimmy to proclaim to me in my life today? And so we're just going to go through verse by verse, starting in, in verse 1, and I'm going to show you how Jesus um, makes everything new. And so we even see in the book of Revelation, and what's going to happen here is that what we're looking at today is Jesus makes all things new spiritually. Okay, so he recreates things. When he comes the second time as the conquering king, he, he, this time, when he came the first time, he recreates things spiritually. When he comes the second time, he will recreate things physically to merge with what he has recreated spiritually. That's why it is so important for us to um, know that we have already experienced a resurrection. You might say, well, I thought the resurrection is in the future. Well, it is physically, but spiritually it is in the now. And if you don't have a resurrection to life right now, um, in, in this age, then when Jesus returns in the future, you will not have a physical resurrection of life. You will have a physical resurrection of death, which is separation. And it will not be, when I say death, I don't mean... Um, I don't mean annihilation. I mean eternal separation from God and all that is good. And so even the pagan right now walks in the fellowship and the grace of God. Even the person who doesn't believe that Jesus was God, doesn't believe in God at all. Even the atheist who says, I don't believe a God exists. He walks under the blessing and the grace and the mercy of God. Because God is withholding His wrath. But when he returns the second time as the conquering king, all of his wrath will be poured out. And the only thing that will keep us from the wrath of God is whether or not we have experienced a spiritual resurrection of life. 
And then the, the, the continual unity that we have with Christ will continue to flow from us. The, 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 the river of life will continue to flow in us and we will go on throughout eternity unified with Jesus. And so in Luke chapter 6, as I kind of lay all this out in a summary and we begin to unpack it, we see Jesus specifically teaching how He has recreated and made all these things new. And so we start with one of the things um, is the Sabbath. Now the Sabbath, there's all kinds of debate. Why do some people say it's on Saturday and some people say it's on Sunday? And so we still, even 2,000 years later, we get tripped up on this thing called the Sabbath. And we think, well, to keep the Sabbath holy means I need to go to church. Okay, on Sunday. That's not what it means. You should be at church on Sunday because the, the early believers gathered on the first day of the week and they shared what they had in common was their faith in the Lord. But the Sabbath no longer is about a day. And that's why Paul is able to say one man thinks this day is more holy than that and another one thinks this day and they go back and forth. But he says, listen, we, you got to decide in your own mind. But watch what Jesus says. He says, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. And some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And so he's referring to himself as the Son of Man. And this is a term that means all that a man was originally designed to be. And so Jesus um, is referring to himself and saying, Look, I am all that a man was originally designed to be. I'm showing you that. And as the Son of Man who is divine, he's saying that the, the Son of Man is Lord over that Sabbath. And he goes on and it says, On another Sabbath, he went into the synagogue and was teaching and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. But Jesus knew what they were thinking and said to the man with the shriveled hand, Get up and stand in front of everyone. So he got up and he stood there. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? He looked around at them all and then said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so and his hand was completely restored. But they were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Okay? Now that's a fault they had right there, is they were discussing what they might do to Jesus instead of discussing what they might do with Jesus. And that's an important question to, for us to ask. But the first thing that we see here in this um, account that Luke records in chapter 6 is that Jesus creates a new Sabbath. That's what he's trying to say. Is, is Here's what you have to understand. Now Sabbath is rest. And Jesus is basically proclaiming, I am the Sabbath. I am rest. 
And so you guys are all hung up about a day and a doctrine when you should be hung up about me. You're all hung up about what you're going to do to me when you should be all hung up about what you're going to do with me. Because that's the only way for this thing to work is if you understand that I am the Sabbath. That's why he says in another account um, through the Gospel of John, he says, Come unto me, all you who are um, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest for your souls. I will give you Sabbath for your souls. And so Jesus recreates the Sabbath. They were walking out, as they should have been, that the Sabbath was a day. Now God is there in the flesh as he's walked even into Zerubbabel's temple and he's uh, declared war on their religion and beginning to teach them that it's about a relationship. One of the very primary things that he teaches them is it's not about the day of the week. It's about your ability to die to yourself. And so he's showing, I am rest. I am the Sabbath. And so this becomes, as, as, we, as we walk through the rest of this chapter, we'll begin to see why this is very important. Because in our discipleship model, what we try to teach people is that if you want to accomplish anything in your life, you have to do it from a place of rest. Okay? In our culture, what we teach people is if you, um, uh, if you want to accomplish anything in life, then you have to work as hard as you can until you die. Okay? You have to be a workaholic. You have to work more and more and more and more. Like, it's not going to come to you just on its own. You've got to do everything you can to go out and get it. And so that kind of thinking and mentality that is the uh, cultural norm for the uh, Western world has crept into the church. And so now we think that if we're going to walk with God and we're going to do things for God, then we have to go out and get it. And we bring that mentality into our faith, okay? And it messes everything up. So we start trying to identify with the Lord and, and, and walk with Him in relationship based upon what we do on a daily basis. And that just totally messes things up because then you become a self-righteous hypocrite just like the Pharisees. And the, the law just spirals out of control and you start, I mean, how much can you do until you've done enough to please God? And we see very quickly that this messes everything up. And so we teach that you, in order to be able to produce anything in your life, you have to take a, hit the pause button and you have to learn how to rest in Jesus. And when you rest in Jesus, then you will begin to produce fruit in your life. Okay? So, so like we think in terms of John chapter 15. He says, it's impossible for you to produce fruit Unless you meno, you remain in me. So again, we see reinforced over and over and over and over again. The only way to produce spiritual fruit in your life is to recognize that Jesus is the Sabbath and I must have experiences frequently with Jesus where I'm resting in Him and the fruit of God will start to grow in my life. Now, what is the fruit of God? Well, we know that the fruit of the Spirit based upon Galatians chapter 5 is love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering, um, long um, all of these different things that God says will just manifest in our lives. If what? If we try to work hard in the kingdom? No. If we learn how to rest in the Lord as the Sabbath. So the first thing Jesus shows us in, in Luke chapter 6 is that He makes a new Sabbath. Now look at verse 12. 
It says, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray. And he spent the night praying to God. And when morning came, he called his disciples to him, and he chose 12 of them whom he also designated apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Here's the second thing we see. Jesus, after saying, I'm creating or demonstrating a new Sabbath, creates a new nation. Now, it is intentional that he chooses 12. There were 12 tribes in the nation of Israel. So the number 12 is always symbolic in the Bible. It's a very important number in Jewish apocalyptic literature. And so when he chooses 12 apostles, he's going to take those apostles, he's going to spend three years with them, instructing them on the way that he wants things done as the God-man. And so he's going to invite them into his life. He's going to do one-on-one discipleship with them. He's going to train them, and he's going to make a new nation out of them. And that is why the people of God now today are called a royal priesthood, a holy what? Nation. And so we get what? Praises to God, declaring with sacrifices and offerings. And, 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 and so Peter teaches us in his epistle about the priesthood of the believer. And so now we're seeing that God, the God-man Jesus is saying, not only am I making a new Sabbath, which is me, you will rest in me now, I'm also going to make a new nation, and that new nation is the church itself. And so we're living in the church age where that nation is being populated by people who have experienced the transformation in the power of God. Not by religious people. Not by people who go to the Methodist church or the Baptist church or the non-denominational church. Not by people who say, well, I don't believe in church. It's being populated by one thing. People who have been transformed by the power of God. And they can exist in all of those denominations, but they will never be a part of the nation and the kingdom of God unless a transformation has taken place in their lives. And that's why these prophets throughout all of their prophecies are talking about the coming of the Messiah. Because this was something that they looked forward to and they didn't know how God was going to do it. And God, Jesus himself, the God-man, is showing us how it's going to be done. There will be a new nation. Well, then we go on and it gets interesting. He says, um, he went down with them. And so here's what we see in this passage as he spends uh, all night in prayer up on the mountain, modeling for us what it means to walk with God is a relationship that we spend in communication with him. And then he comes down and we say he goes in as he reaches out to the other uh, people and invites them into his life. And after that, then we see the progression where he goes out. And now he's going out to teach. And it says, He went down with them and stood on a level place, and a large crowd of disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, and from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, watch this. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. 
Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. In other words, blessed are you when people reject you because you believe in me. Rejoice in that day, he says, and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their fathers treated the prophets. So what's he referring to? Back to the prophets that we've been learning about. When the prophets would teach them about the things of God, they rejected them sometimes, made fun of them, and even abused them at different times. And so he says, blessed are you if you're a part of that group where you're suffering because you believe in the gospel, where you hunger uh, to be satisfied by God himself, where you realize this life is about uh, more than what you're experiencing on a daily basis. That's basically what he's saying to them. And then he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. What did the false prophets do? The false prophets, we know after all of this uh, learning that we've had in the Old Testament, the false, false prophets compromised the truth of God's word in order to benefit their own lifestyles so that they could obtain power and pleasure. So they weren't concerned about the truth of God. They were concerned about the reality of their experience. It is the same exact thing that we're struggling with thousands of years later in the modern day church. People who are either caught up in the things of God and pursuing the things of God. Blessed are you who hunger for righteousness. Blessed are you who weep and mourn. Weep and mourn over what? Over your sin. And you recognize that you're a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. Blessed are you. Blessed are you who mourn over that because you will laugh. Laugh with what? Laugh with the joy of the Lord that is put in you when you realize you've been forgiven, not by what you've done, but because of what He's done in you. You're blessed if you're that way. But woe to you if you're rich. Does that mean rich people can't be saved? No. It means people who are so caught up in uh, materialism that that is the driving force and passion in their life. Woe to you because you're going to be poor. Woe to you who are, are fulfilling all of your desires and all of your needs and materialism has infected your soul and you don't care anything about the things of God. Woe to you because though you are rich in all of these experiences, you are poor in the things that really matter. And so this is what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching these two comparisons of lifestyles. They're the same lifestyles that people are struggling with today. And what we see is that Jesus, um, in this particular place, um, he's creating a new life. He's saying there's two different lives. There's a life that can be lived with fulfillment and satisfaction and joy and all of these experiences that God gives to you. And there's a life that can be um, uh, full of things but total dissatisfaction. And so we see that, first of all, he created a new Sabbath, a new nation, and now we see a new life. Now watch what happens in this new life for those who possess it. We look at verse um, 27. And he says, But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies. Do good to those who uh, hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. 
Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. The golden rule. What are we seeing here? Well, we're seeing that Jesus is creating a new law. The old law was, was to, to follow God with these sacrificial things, all right? These outward experiences. But the new law was going to have to do with your inward attitude and heart and a way to approach life. And he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. He goes on. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners tend to or lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But he says, love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then, he says, your reward will be great and you will be sons. Now that's important. You will be sons of the Most High. Why? Because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. And so he says, be merciful just as your father is merciful. Now, does this mean that, that we lend, that we try to put ourselves in compromising situations where people are going to take advantage of us? Does this mean that we try to put ourselves to see if we can get slapped in the face just to see if we have what it takes to turn the other uh, cheek? That's not what it's saying. It's, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's, he's showing the impossibility of a human in his own power to be able to achieve these things. Because we read those things and we go like, that's crazy, man. If you live that way, you're going to be totally taken advantage of. You can't live that way. But Jesus is doing something very important. And I'll show you here in a second. Again, he's showing a new law is happening. And so he goes on in verse 37. And he says, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, what is the new law? The new law, as Paul teaches us, the greatest theologian who ever lived outside of Jesus, as he writes in the epistles, he talks about the law. And what does he say about the law? It is a law that is written upon the heart. Okay, so the law was written on stone and you followed it and it was external. But now because of what is happening and that law was designed to, to point toward the, the sacrifice of the lamb. And when the lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world would come as they were following the law and they had to every year they would sacrifice hundreds of thousands of lambs on a particular day. So many that the blood would flow from the altar and they had to have a channel where it would flow and get away from the temple. And it was to remind them uh, that externally that they were in faith walking out this law. And Jesus is teaching, I'm going to do something internally and I'm going to write the law on your heart so that if somebody does slap you in your face, your first response is not going to be to slap them back. Your first response is going to be, man, God has shown me mercy. How can I show that guy mercy? 
See, when the law is written on your heart, you start to think and act differently because now you're being merciful as your heavenly Father is merciful. He says, forgive because you've been forgiven. Some of you won't forgive people who are walking in life with you because you've never been forgiven by God. You don't know how to forgive them. And you don't think you have to forgive them because you look at what they've done to you instead of thinking about what you did to God. You see, when you start to think about what you did to God and you realize that God has forgiven you, then you have recognized and experienced grace. And that grace causes you to well up inside and now you have joy in you and you have a reason to laugh. And so when someone sins against you and, and, and they, 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 like they've uh, offended you, you know how immediately to forgive them. And ultimately, if the law of God is written on your heart, you can forgive people before they sin against you you because now you look like Jesus it's a new law and it's written on your heart and so we see that Jesus creates a new Sabbath a new nation a new life and a new law and then he all of a sudden we get this parable from uh, Luke and he says he also told them this parable can a blind man lead a blind man will they not both fall into a pit a student is not above his teacher but everyone who's fully trained will be what? Like his teacher. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself fail to see the plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. Now, what people will do all the time is say, well, you shouldn't judge in this situation because God said not to judge. And, and you know, man, you got a, a plank in your eye and the brother you're trying to take with speck out. That's not what God is saying. What God is saying is don't be trying to remove splinters from people's eyes when you got a log sticking out of yours. First, you got to get the log out of your eye. And this is very, very important because then he goes on and he says, um, he says, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your eye and then you will see clearly what? to remove the speck from your other brother's eye. What, what is this about? Well, we see Jesus gives a new guide. What is the guide? It's, it's the promise of the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 17, we see the teaching of uh, uh, 15, 16, and 17. We see clearly the teaching of the counselor, the paracletes. He will come, the Holy Spirit, and he will be in you, and he will remind you of the things I've taught to you, uh, and he will help you uh, to live the life that I expect you to live. Now, we go back to the parable that he started with, and he says, can a blind man lead a blind man? No, they both will fall into the pit. So what is he saying? He's saying if people are going to lead other people, they can't be spiritually blind. That's why he always, when he teaches, he says, I pray that you have ears to hear and eyes to see so that the plank may be taken out of your eye and you can see clearly that I have done a work in your life. Now you are able to guide other people. That's why he's able to say when he ascends upon high in Matthew chapter 28 and he gives us the great commission and he says, go and make disciples. It's because He's going to give us the ability to make disciples because when we recognize that we're sinners and we recognize a new law is available and we recognize the only way to get it is to surrender our lives to Christ and believe on Him as the perfect atoning sacrifice, then that is the point in which we take the plank out of our eye. Because now we're seeing with eyes of faith. 
We've quit looking with physical eyes. We've taken the plank out of our eyes and now we can see spiritually and we become the same kind of thing that Christ is in the way that we are able to behave. And so now we have the ability to produce the fruit of the Spirit because now we recognize Jesus is the Sabbath. We recognize that He has given a new life, a new law, and a new guide. And so now I can clearly see in my own life how to walk. I can clearly hear from another person whom I have confidence that is not blind. Like one of the, the wonderful things about discipleship is being able to be in relationship with other people and they can say to you, man, uh, like as, they, as you say, I, I'm struggling with uh, such and such in my life. I'm trying to gain victory over A, B, C, or D. Then they can begin to speak into your life. And if you know they've taken the plank out of their eye, you can hear what they say and receive it. And so you guide each other. You walk with each other. And you become part of a new nation that is a holy priesthood offering sacrifices, helping people work through moments so that the power of God may fall on your lives and transformation takes place within the body of Christ and we move forward the kingdom agenda. It's so clear. It, it is so clear. So I don't understand why so many of us want to continue to be caught up in the things of the world, the richness, the experiences, where Jesus clearly says, woe to you if you get caught up in those things. You're never going to be satisfied. But if you could just see clearly what I'm trying to say to you, you would recognize the plank in your eye and you'd want it out forever so that you could begin to walk a meaningful life where I started to pour my power through you. And all your experiences actually meant something something, they weren't just a wasted life when you draw your last breath. And so we see a new Sabbath, a new nation, a new life, a new law, a new guide. And then in verses 43 through 45, he shows us how this is done. And he says this, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. The good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the overflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. What is going on there? Well, Jesus is saying like, like we look at all of that. Now here's, here's what would be the worst thing in the world for you to walk out today and try to do. Well, you, you try to go, well, man, this week, if somebody wrongs me, I'm going to forgive them. Um, if, if, uh, you know, if somebody like tries to take advantage of me, I'm just going to overlook it. If I loan somebody some money and they haven't paid me back, I'm just going to forgive the debt. And you say, because that's what Jesus said to do. Now, you would be missing it entirely. What Jesus is saying is out of your heart overflows what has really happened inside of you. And you can't be good and you can't produce fruit just by trying. The only way for this fruit to grow in your life is for a, the spiritual physician to specifically and with precision go into your life and do a spiritual surgery and remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh that beats for him. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never be good enough. You'll never, you'll never be able to respond. It'll never be the first inclination that comes out of you. You'll never have the uh, intuition of the Spirit because you will still be dead spiritually if you just try to do it on your own. You'll just be another Pharisee. 
The only way for it to happen is for you to recognize you can't do it. Only Jesus can do it. Only he can do the miraculous of performing a spiritual resurrection in your life. And the first step toward that is recognizing that you are a dead sinner that stands in need of God's grace. And you are offensive to God. You say, well, I don't like to think of God that way. You should, because that's clearly what he's taught us. He said, in that while you were still sinners, enemies of God, Christ did what he died for you. And so the first recognition of receiving a new heart that is a resurrected heart and being raised to life spiritually is recognizing I'm a sinner that stands in need of God's grace. And when I recognize that I'm broken over my sin and I can go back to what Jesus said the new life would look like. Blessed are you who weep and mourn over your sin. Blessed are you who recognize sin is, is destructive and it's offensive to God and you are a sinner. Blessed are you who recognize that. But woe to you who forget, for fail to recognize that because you'll never be satisfied. But those of you who recognize it, what's going to happen is you're going to recognize your need for a Savior. And when you invite me into your life, I'm going to pull the plank out of your eye and I'm going to give you a guide to walk through life. You're going to receive the new life and you're going to look at that and you're going to know that there's nothing you could do to earn that. And when you mourn over your sin, it will be turned to laughter because you will be joyful in the realization that God has forgiven you for all you have done in offense to Him. And that's why sometimes when we worship the Lord, man, and I'm down there and, and I'm just worshiping and Sean is leading us and I can begin to weep, but I feel so much joy inside because I'm remembering all of my sin and going, God has forgiven me and I'm in a right standing and I can get before His people today and stand up before them and preach the Word of God, not because I'm good, but because He is good and He has given me a new heart that yearns for Him. And I fall short as all fall short of the glory of God, but God continues to work in my life and I continue to yearn after righteousness. I continue to yearn after my heart beating like his heart and he continues to produce fruit in my life and it seems to me the older I get the more I recognize I'm, I'm, I'm so unholy but the more holy I feel and easier life becomes because I realize I can't do it in my own power. And, and life starts to become really enjoyable because I'm just walking in the favor of the Lord. And so we end it here, and we, we land this plane with the last few verses. And this is where we see it all come together. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? I will show you what he is like who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice. He is like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid the foundation on rock. And when a flood came, the torrent struck that house but could not shake it because it was well built. But when the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice, he is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. And so just to tie it all together, the big idea of today's talk, you cannot live this life unless you possess it. You just can't. And so what he's saying is like, man, when a person really starts to think about these things and they start to look at their lives, and they dig down deep into their lives. And they uncover the root of the issue. 
then what they will find is the only thing that can hold them up is the rock. That's it. And so you go, like, that's it. And so I'm, I, I start to construct my life on the rock Christ Jesus. And when someone slaps me in the face, instead of wanting to slap them back, I immediately feel empathy toward them. And, and then when someone sins against me, instead of me immediately like wanting to say, well, that person is worthless, I won't have anything to do with them, I'm writing them off of my life, I have empathy for them and I'm broken over them and I want to forgive them. Why? Because I've built my life on the rock and when I dug down deep, I recognized I was a sinner and God was merciful to me and all of a sudden, I want to be merciful to other people. And it's out of the overflow of my heart because it has been built on the rock of Christ Jesus that when the storms of injustice hit my life, when the storms of, of, of people are coming against me, when harm comes to my life, when people reject me because of Christ, then I can look and I can know I've dug down deep and my life is built upon the rock and nothing can knock me over. But when I go to church and I'm like, man, I... I really like the people of God. It makes me feel good when I'm there. And, and I try to give a little. And I try to do the things, you know. But I'm not. If you don't dig down deep, man. When someone sins against you, you say, I don't want anything to do with that person anymore. They're out of my life. Write them off. I don't want to cross paths with them anymore. I don't even want them to, I don't even want them to, to, to be on my, my friends list in my phone. If they call, I want their number to be blocked. I'm writing them off. You've built your life on the ground, bro. You haven't dug down deep. The life of Christ is not in you. If you don't have a spirit inside of you that immediately has compassion for people, then He's not made you into the same thing as Himself. You're just like the rest of the world. And that is the very thing through the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament prophets and God coming as a man Himself and saying, man, when I do something in you, you will be transformed. You will be a new creation. The old will be gone and the new will come and I will turn you into the same kind of thing as Myself. You will take on My character. And people will look at your life and they'll go, that guy lives different. That lady doesn't treat me like everybody else. That person is different and I want some of what they have because I don't see it anywhere else on the planet. That's the people who've dug down deep. And that is the new nation that Jesus said he would build. And that's what it means to be a royal priesthood, a holy nation that is offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Something has happened in us. And we know that when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, he told him, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. This is what he's talking about. And all this stuff will happen inside of you. And it's stuff you can't do on your own. It's a, it's, it's a rebirth and a cleansing of the soul and a purification so that I'm no longer an enemy of Christ. I'm no longer an enemy of God. I'm a priest of God. You are, if, if that has happened in your life, you are a priest of God. And the law of God has been written on your heart through the blood of Christ. And you are no longer your own. And that is why you look to Him and say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Where are you at in your walk with the Lord today? 
Have you had the law of God written on your heart? Do you have the new life or are you just trying to live it on your own? The gospel is so simple yet so unbelievably complex in what it does in our lives. And the element that brings it all together is when we have faith in Christ to reform us. No one looking around. I'm just going to give you a moment to just pray. I'm going to lead us in prayer. And then I'm going to ask you, which I believe with all my heart, some of you, like the lights have probably come on for you today in a special way. I'm going to ask you to take the next step. I'm not, like, like you need to tell somebody that you want to take the next step with Jesus. And if it's me on the way out, if it's Shay, if it's Molly or Abby or the person you came with, I don't know. But, but if the Lord has done, like if he's after you, man, you tell somebody and let the Lord finish what he's starting inside of you and receive the transformation that's about to take place in your life. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. We love you. We praise you. We thank you, Lord, for those um, who, uh, like you're shedding light in their lives right now. The truth is penetrating their hearts, and they're ready to dig down deep and build their lives on you, Christ, the rock. And so I pray for them, Lord. I pray for your Holy Spirit to flow out in their lives and to overflow, Lord, that a real transformation takes place. I know, Lord, when transformation happens, what it is like, and I pray that people would experience you the way I've been able to experience you. I pray, Lord, that our ministry would be reflective of that, that we would just be a place of transformation where people are digging down deep and building their lives on you, Christ the rock. We love you. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Overland Park Community Church in Overland Park, Kansas. For more information, visit us online at www.overlandpark.cc.